Hi everyone and welcome to the This Week in British History podcast. Before we get started, this is an audio version of the YouTube series This Week in British History, which is available on the British History Tours uh, uh, channel. So just to let you know that if you want to watch so that you also get the visuals, there is a link in the show notes on this podcast, which will give you the link to YouTube. But I've also recorded this, so in a way that I hope you can enjoy it fully also as a podcast. All right, let's get started. Hello fellow history lovers and welcome to this episode of This Week in British History. If you love British history then you are definitely in the right place. My name is Philippa Lacey Brule from British History Tours and this week I am going to take you through some of the events which happened between the 9th and the 15th of March. If you're a history lover, please make sure you subscribe to the channel and hit the bell for notifications. There's a new episode of This Week in British History each Sunday, but I also upload other videos in between times as well, so you will get to know when that happens. But if you can't wait a week and you wanted more of a daily dose of history, please do check out my Facebook and Instagram profiles. The links are in the show notes. But for now, let's have a look at This Week in British History. In this episode, we are going to be covering the grisly murder of one of Mary Queen of Scots' closest friends in front of her. We are going to be talking about the first of Henry VIII's jousting accidents, the birth of the composer which, who gave us Rule Britannia, among other patriotic songs, and also the death of Anne Boleyn's father, Thomas Boleyn. On the 9th of March 1566, Mary Queen of Scots witnessed the brutal murder of her private secretary David Rizzio in her private apartments at the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh. Mary, Rizzio and another few of her closest servants had been taking supper in a small chamber off the main bedchamber. The murderers, recognisable nobles from court, had come up the private stairs from her husband Darnley's apartments which were below to accost Rizzio and they insisted that he go with them. He refused, he was petrified, he held on to Mary's skirts as he was attacked. Accounts vary but it could have been that he actually took a couple of stab wounds whilst he was still trying to desperately cling to Mary's skirts before he was dragged out of the room and he sustained, Mary said 56 stab wounds, between 50 and 60 stab wounds um, and it, he, his body was left at the bottom of the private stairs. Now, if you go to the Palace of Holyrood House, which I would thoroughly recommend, the apartments there are as Mary would recognise them. They are as Mary would uh, in Mary's time. But what is really uh, funny uh, is if you go out of her apartments, there's another room attached to it. It's a little while since I went, but I remember on the floor there is a red patch. And this red patch had the desired effect on me when I first saw it for the first sort of split second. It was like, <gasps> you know, because I never knew about the Rizzio murder. Um, oh my goodness, there's like a blood stain on the floor. And then and then cognition kicked in and oh, that, that can't quite be possible and it's not actually where his body was left. It was... Uh, it turned out to be red boot polish that Victorian room guides or the Victorian 
they weren't officially room guides then, um, people who were paid to like show people around how the house, uh, they'd put the red boot polish there to sort of add some detail and some, some colour to the story of the Rizzio murder. But why did they want to murder Rizzio? Well, Rizzio had come to court a few years earlier as a musician to the ambassador of the Duke of Savoy. So that is quite a step up from musician to an ambassador to being the Queen's private or confidential secretary. And you don't do that without causing enemies at court. And this is what happened. Mary, for her part, was also making um, enemies at court and her, uh, her behaviour was making the nobles very nervous, especially the Protestant ones. Uh, three of them had been called to trial on the 12th of March, so these events immediately preceded them. Mary was at this time married to Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, Earl of Bothwell. Now, he was not a nice character. He was certainly not a good husband. And the moment, pretty much, that they were married, um, all this came out. He was, he was violent, he was um, a womanizer, he drank too much, and he was extremely power hungry. He expected to be declared king um, on his marriage to Mary. And so he was also an easily manipulated character. And when the, uh, the nobles who were going to be brought to trial uh, basically contacted him, contacted him, uh, got into, uh, and, and got him involved in a plot basically to rid uh, them of Rizzio and to scare Mary and to put Mary back in her place. You know, Mary, you can't act like that. This is how it's going to be, etc, etc. Read into it. Um, so this murder, not only is it, was it gruesome, but Rizzio was kind of the um, the sacrificial lamb, if you like, to the demonstration um, of the nobles, of their power and of what they were willing, the lengths that they were willing to go to, to keep Mary under control. Mary's husband was present, but he didn't, he didn't stab Rizzio, however his dagger was used and his dagger was left in the body so that Darnley could not persuade anyone that he had had nothing to do with the murder. On the 10th of March 1524, Henry VIII had a really serious jousting accident. Now this isn't the one that you may have heard of that rendered him unconscious. Um, this is much, much earlier, but it could have been fatal. The king had designed his own new armour and the armouries had made it and he was wearing it. Uh, so what would happen, they'd, they would get on the horse in the full armour, visor up. Once their visors were down, the visibility and um, their ability to hear was very much um, subdued. It was very uh, much uh, muted. And, but of course they had to have the full visor down for safety reasons. Now the joust, it, for anyone who doesn't know, is where the jousters, men at this point, would be uh, on horses and they would carry a lance. These were very long, I don't know how long, um, uh, wooden sort of spears, if you like, big wooden lance, they were heavy, you had to be physically fit, um, obviously good horsemen, and you would aim the lance at your opponent who would be riding at full speed as you were riding at full speed towards each other. Um, quite dangerous 
<laughs> anyway, and so the armour was obviously very, very important. Well, on this day, Henry was jousting against his best friend, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. And Henry was on his horse, his visor up. Now, I think convention, and maybe someone out there can tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, was that the lance was only handed to the jouster when they were ready to, to, to go at the lists, as it was called. Well, Henry was handed his, uh, his lance before his visor was put down. Um, the, the, the being handed the lance was a signal to Charles Brandon's uh, servant who was handing him the list, uh, the, uh, the, his lance that the king was ready to ride. Charles Brandon was already ready, visor down, poor visibility, poor audibility, and he went at the list. The king went and they, uh, and so they went full pile to each other and the, the lance of Charles Brandon actually hit the king. Um, from the descriptions, it sounds like it hit him kind of on, on the head where the visor was up and pushed what would have been, should have been over his face, uh, even further back, that's how I read it. But it's splintered. So you've got wood splinters everywhere, near the king's eye, near the king's, well, on the king's head, near the king's brain. Um, and so this was an incredibly close, uh, you know, close, I was gonna say close call, but he, he wasn't, or he didn't appear to be injured. It was, um, he was very, very lucky. Charles Brandon, for his part, immediately came over and and demonstrated how he, he couldn't see the king and, and and swore that he wouldn't ride against him. Uh, again, Henry went on and jousted six more times, I think it was that day, to prove that he was fine and it's okay, everybody. Um, but that must have really shook him up. And even if it didn't shake him up, I think all of his, um, all of his courtiers would have been um, quite concerned. What would we do if the king died? Because at this point, there was no male heir. On the 12th of March 1539, Thomas Boleyn, the father of Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife, died at their family home at Hever Castle. Thomas's daughter Anne Boleyn famously was executed in May 1536 after being tried on jumped up charges of treason and adultery. Now her brother George Boleyn was caught up in this made-up story effectively and uh, and it would have been said that she had committed incest with him and he was also executed. So Thomas Boleyn had lost two children uh, to his master. He obviously was in the court of Henry VIII and his daughter Anne and his son George had both been executed uh, in this in these events of um, May 1536. If you want to know more about the events of May 1536, I will put some fabulous links in the show notes um, to some great resources about that. Uh, so Thomas was restored to favour somewhat uh, in uh, to Henry VIII, um, but he lived for less than three years after the executions of his children. Thomas is buried in St. Peter's Church, 
which is a short walk away from Hever Castle. And his brasswork is quite unique. Uh, it, it's complete for a start. It's still on his tomb. Much of the brasswork um, on tombs was either pilfered or um, actually a lot of it went during the uh, the civil wars, the English civil wars of the 17th century. A lot of brasswork was removed, um, forcibly removed from tombs. So the fact that Thomas's is in situ and is in such good condition is 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 great and we can see um, on there the Knight of the Garter badge and also Anne's falcon crest. Also on the 12th of March, this time in 1710, Thomas Augustine Arne is born. He was an English composer and is responsible for the Rule Britannia song that is, is played proudly at the end of um, the proms each year and it's a real patriotic song. What is really interesting about Rule Britannia is that it was not written as such. It was in fact the finale song to uh, what we would describe as a musical based on the life of King Alfred. The musical about King Alfred had been commissioned by the king at the time's eldest son. George II was on the throne and George II didn't get on with his eldest son, Prince Frederick, Prince of Wales, but then there were Hanoverians and that was kind of the pattern um, in that family. But the way that this kind of, this tended to play out was the, the heir to the throne pitched himself politically against the current king and this is what happened in the case of George II and Prince Frederick. One of the ways to do that was to show you were in with the arts, in with what was the up-and-coming trends and Prince Frederick commissioned Arne um, and, and, the, and the, this musical around the story of King Alfred was created. The hero of the piece was not King Alfred but his eldest son. So this mask or musical about King Alfred was first performed at Prince Frederick's house at Clevedon House in Buckinghamshire in the outdoor amphitheatre there and Royal Britannia was its rousing finale. The words were originally a poem written by playwright James Thompson and poet David Mallet. The original performance in 1740 at Clifton House was a private affair. It was to celebrate the third birthday of Prince Frederick's daughter, Princess Augusta. In 1745, Royal Britannia was performed for the first time to the public in London and it was an immediate success. The music is stirring and the words invoke feelings of patriotism. And at a time where Britain was bidding to rule the waves, um, expand the empire and be a dominant force on the seas. We have to remember we're quite soon into the Hanoverian dynasty, which is probably worth a video on its own. But this is a time where we're a, a newly united England and, uh, and Scotland, so Great Britain is new and it is still obvious that we have a German king or we have a German monarchy so this idea of Britishness was new this idea of getting behind 
your uh, the, 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 this, this monarchy was going to stay, that this is our, our monarchy now, that was important and it was recognised that it could do this strongly through music and Royal Britannia went some way towards doing that and Royal Britannia is now performed every year after as the and Royal, and Royal Britannia is now performed every year as the finale to the BBC proms and it evokes patriotism and pride in a country that once ruled the waves some now preferring to change Royal Britannia to Cool Britannia times change Thank you so much for watching this week in British history. If you enjoyed it, please do give it a thumbs up. And if you write a comment, I will definitely be replying to you. Please hit the bell so that you know when the next one of these goes live or any of the other videos that I upload. You can come along to my Facebook or Instagram profile as well if you want more of a daily dose of history. But for now, I hope you have a fantastic week and I will see you all again soon.